Well, if you have your Bibles uh, with you today, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. We are welcoming uh, those of you who are joining us today. We're glad that you're here. And as a church, we're studying currently through the book of Hebrews. And we come to the third chapter, the beginning of the third chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 today. Our sermon is entitled, Behold Jesus, Beholding Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, or consider Jesus, I should say. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 today. Let's pray together, and then uh, we'll, we'll read. So let's, let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, know that apart from you we can do nothing, And so we ask for you to please, for the sake of Christ, send the Holy Spirit so that we could have a proper and right understanding of these verses and that we would be believing and not unbelieving, that we'd have a soft and tender heart, we'd have a will that is compliant, uh, that would be gladly going out to our Savior Jesus Christ by faith. And so we pray that you'd work in each and every person here today, that everybody would experience a blessing from you. We pray, Lord, this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 6. Let's now listen and consider the scriptures. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Amen. This morning, I want us to consider these six verses in three parts. We are dealing with the theme of considering Jesus, considering Jesus. And I want us to consider Christ in three ways. First of all, from verse number one, that we consider Christ as our apostle and high priest. Consider Christ as an apostle and high priest. Secondly, from verses 2 through 4, that we consider Christ as a builder, that we consider Christ as a builder. And then finally, verses 5 through 6, that we consider Christ as a son who is greater than a servant. So that we consider Christ, one, as an apostle and high priest, two, as a builder, and three, as a son 
who is greater than a servant. Now, why does the author of Hebrews have us to consider Jesus Christ here? Well, because we have seen over the last few weeks that the author of Hebrews is writing to a congregation that is thinking in their own mind and outlook of leaving the Lord Jesus Christ and going back to their former ways. It is believed that this congregation was composed chiefly of those who would have been Jewish, and many of them, maybe because, let's just be sympathetic here, maybe because of the persecutions that we read about in the book of Acts, which were severe for many Jews. Many Jews lost family. They were kicked out of the synagogue often. They were persecuted. They were arrested. They were stoned. They had to escape in baskets and all the rest. And so we don't want to be too judgmental of of them, and we want to be, I think, pastorally sympathetic. But given the pressures that they were under, many of them were thinking, you know, maybe it was sufficient to be followers of Moses. It was sufficient for us in the days when we had the Old Covenant. And so the author of Hebrews, I think, is pastorally encouraging these people to persevere in their faith. And one of the ways that the author of Hebrews, uh, and I say author of Hebrews because we don't know for sure who the author is. There are various theories on who he is. But the author is trying to persuade the people to persevere. And today, we're going to see that one of the ways that we persevere in our own faith, just like this congregation is called to persevere, even though we may have different trials and testings today, is to consider Jesus. That is, Jesus has to be at front and center of our thinking. And, and he needs to be at the forefront of who we are and how we look at ourselves and how we identify ourselves. We are in union with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of everything, of our salvation and of who we are and of what we live for and, and of our, our, our significance and meaning. It is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it is not just a temptation for those who are first century Jews to 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 want to leave Jesus Christ. We are faced, even in our own day, with like temptations. There are those people and ministries and teachers that would come along and say, you know, I think it's great that you confess Christ and that you have Jesus, but if you really want to live a victorious life, then you need more. And so, and that more can vary. It, it, can, be, it can be biblical principles, quote unquote. It, you know, what you need here are to follow my 12 steps. What you need here is you need to follow this way uh, that I am offering here, that my, you know, parachurch ministry specializes in. Uh, and if you'll do this, you'll, you'll find all kinds of success and and blessing, and, and uh, this, this will change everything. And if we're not careful, uh, those uh, people and ministries and ministers who begin to specialize in these quote-unquote other things, these other principles, these other teachings, end up leading us away from Jesus, who is to be at the front and center of our thinking. And so that Jesus almost becomes uh, ancillary, to our life, that, that Jesus is um, an addendum that's attached to who we are, rather than the very person 
who is the most center and crucial to us, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, and, I, and I'll give examples of this later in the message. But so I want you to know that this is, this is an issue for us too. I don't want you to think, ah, well, this was a first century issue. This pertains to Jews. I'm a Gentile. But these challenges are still before us. Now, last week, you'll remember that we were closing out, and in verse 17, it says here, therefore, chapter 2, verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren, that is, speaking of Jesus. Jesus had to become a man. He had to be made like us in the incarnation. He, being the eternal Son of God, became a man in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the last week we were considering how Jesus' incarnation was so that he could do several things. Number one, that he could pay the penalty for our sins. We, had, we talked about penal substitution here, that the atonement of Jesus Christ was not according to the ransom theory where you know he's paying the devil off. No. What is Jesus doing there? He is himself on that cross. He is propitiating the wrath of God. That is the word there in verse 17. Um, Some of your mainline Bibles, in fact, a lot of people reject this notion of penal substitutionary atonement. Um, In many mainline churches, you'll find they even change the word here in verse 17 from propitiation to expiation. I looked it up in the RSV this morning even and uh, did notice, yes, indeed, that's what they did. They changed uh, the word there. But propitiation means to satisfy divine wrath. Jesus is necessary because Jesus is the way to salvation. He's the way uh, that we have access to the Father because we are sinners. It's necessary that Jesus become like us and take our place in life through a righteous life, to take our place in death on the cross and to take our place in the resurrection and to take our place at the right hand of the Father, making intercession. It is absolutely necessary that Jesus share your humanity and be like you in every way without any sin and so that you could be righteous in his sight. If you're visiting here this morning, let me make this point clear to you. Because the last thing I want you to think is that we view ourselves inherently righteous. We do not. We should not. You can't become a member of this church and believe you're inherently righteous. In fact, when we see the Andrews children taking their vows, one of the things that we publicly have to confess and which they will confess this morning is that they abhor themselves. Pretty strong language, isn't it? That we, we abhor ourselves. We abhor our sin nature. And we look not to ourselves, but to Jesus Christ alone for Righteousness. You see, a lot of people think, and sometimes maybe we're at fault for giving that impression, that we're inherently righteous. But that is not what Covenant Presbyterian Church believes. Covenant Presbyterian Church believes we are inherently unrighteous. And therefore, we need to consider Jesus every day. Jesus is the way to righteousness because it's his righteousness that gains you heaven. It's not my righteousness, 
It's not your righteousness. It's not that you're a Presbyterian. It's not that you pray. It's not that you teach Sunday school. It's not that you give at church. It's not that you're a pastor, an elder, or a deacon. It's Christ. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our life. Christ is our propitiation. Christ is everything. And it was therefore necessary that he become a man. It was, it was necessary. He be made like his brethren in all things. That's where we left off. Now, let's move on to our text though today. Notice here that that thought is conjoined to what follows in chapter 3. Now remember, there were no versification. There was no versification when this was originally written. There was no chapter 3. That was put in there later. But just so you understand, this is not a bad place for division. Notice there that chapter 3 begins with the word therefore. Now why does he do that? Because he wants you to understand the significance of the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection for these three applications. Number one, that you consider Christ. Notice that he says here, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now, I want you to think with me on this, because this is so important. Because a lot of people think that Christianity is about doing things that make God happy. Now, there are things that we have to do. There are exhortations in the New Testament. There is, in the Greek, the hortatory, where we get the word exhortation. Do this. Don't do that. But I want you to notice here, verse 1 of chapter 3, what's the first hortatory, what's the first exhortation before us? The first thing you have to do is what? Think about Jesus. <laughs> before you do anything, do this. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Before you pray, before you teach, before you tithe, before you go into the ministry, before you do any Christian work or duty, we are all called here, we are all being exhorted to consider Jesus. You see, Jesus has to be at the center of our thinking. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became a man and died for us and was raised from the dead for us, He is everything. And that is the central message of the church. If the church had one exhortation to give to the world, it would be consider Jesus. Consider Jesus Christ in all that that means. This is what these parachurches, I think, often are in danger of, of moving away from, is that they are not saying, first and foremost, consider Jesus Now, what does it mean to consider Jesus? Well, it does. let me say what it does not mean. It doesn't mean that we try to make up things about Jesus in our own imagination. We don't try to invent a Jesus of our own thinking. But when it says consider Jesus, I think the scripture here means that we derive a view of Jesus as he is presented in the Bible. That is, let the Bible tell us who Jesus is, and we meditate in response to that revelation from God. God has revealed his Son to us in these last days, we are told. 
And that is the Jesus that we are to meditate upon. We are not to invent a Jesus that we go out into the shack in our backyard, so to speak, and pretend to have these conversations with an imaginary Jesus. We, we, that is not the Jesus we are supposed to consider. We are supposed to consider the Jesus of the Bible, the Word of God, that Jesus in all his deity, in all his humanity, in all of his miracles, in all of his teachings, uh, in all that he has commissioned the church to do, and in all that he has given by his spirit to the apostles to write in the scriptures. That is, we're not just to consider Jesus whenever we find a red sentence in our Bible and and ignore the black sentences in the Bible. Uh, We are to consider the whole Christ as Christ has promised in the Gospel of John to give his spirit to the church. Now let's look again at our text here in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And then the author says, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Now that's kind of interesting that, first of all, he calls Jesus the apostle of our confession. We normally, when we think of the word apostle, we naturally think of what? The 12, don't we? Now the Bible does use the word apostle, though, in a variety of ways. Sometimes the word apostle means the 12 who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. But sometimes, particularly Luke, and sometimes in the book of Acts, will use the word apostle more generically, meaning any of those who were heralds or witnesses to Jesus Christ in the community. So that you have the 12, but then you also, you remember, you had the 72 at one point. And then you had even others who were following, such as the women who were ministering to uh, Jesus through their tithes and and, uh, through their support in in, uh, many ways. So sometimes the Bible here does speak of apostle, um, meaning that one who is a representative, a herald, an ambassador. And I think here, maybe the author of Hebrews is speaking in this sense, that Christ, remember, is the cornerstone. The foundation of the church is the teaching of the apostles, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And here I think that is the sense maybe in which the author of Hebrews is telling us here, that he is the pioneer of this church. That is not to say that he is not saying Jesus is a Christian, but he is saying as the son of God who became a man, he did indeed herald his own cause in which he did commission the 12 apostles then who also instructed others, who also went out and as missionaries and church planters, and built the church. And so he is called the apostle and the high priest of our confession. What is our confession? Our confession is that we believe in one true and living God, in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the second person of this trinity, the Son, became a man and died on the cross and was raised bodily from the dead. This is the confession of the church. And this is what the church needs to be preaching. The the, the point of the church is not to give principles 
so much as it is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The the church is not to give a, a list of helps so much as it is to announce a truth of who the Son of God is in Jesus Christ. The, the preaching of Christ is what changes lives. It's the, it, that is, because that's the central message of the Bible, that is the message that is most owned by the Spirit. That's which gives life and power to preaching. When the Spirit owns this message of Jesus Christ, this is why the message must often focus on Christ, even if it is a, a, marriage, a, a message on marriage, for example, husbands love your wife. Even when you preach about the things that we might call practical theology, you must always anchor it in Christ. How does a husband love his wife? By loving her the way Christ loves the church, and it always comes back to Christ. And therefore, Christ must be the one who is first and foremost honored and preached. This is the job of the church. This is the job of your personal witness to others. You are not here to witness chiefly to principles uh, or to-do lists or anything like that, but to Christ. We are not involved in TED Talks here. We We are announcing something that is unique, something that it alone will save. It is the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. There is no other message that can change a person's life or can save a person or bring them to faith in God, but the gospel the good news. And the good news is not an exhortation. The good news is an announcement of something that has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. We must always in the Christian life begin with the indicative and then move to the hortatory. We must, I know this is not a grammar lesson in English, but we must always first begin with the statements of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then we go on to the duties of the Christian life. And so the the author of Hebrews is telling us that. What's my first duty? Consider Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of your confession, that Jesus Christ remains central. Now we have to ask ourselves, here, I think some maybe searching questions. Questions that I need to think about, boys and girls, as much as you do. And that is, as we go about our day, how often do you think about Jesus? Now, obviously, we have to think about many things in life. And the Apostle Paul would affirm that. But I like the way one Puritan put it. He said that our thinking should be like that of a bird and their nest. And that is that the bird, just as the bird goes out and and finds a bug or a worm and then comes back to the nest, or goes out and finds a new piece of pine straw to put and peck in the nest and build the nest, the bird goes out but keeps coming back. And so the Christian, in the same way, we, we do think about what we need to do in the home and what I need to get done at my workplace. But as we do so, we also, like that bird, we keep coming back home. And where is home? Our home is with Jesus Christ. And so as I work, 
I self-consciously try to work in the light of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done for me. Now, let me say that this is an art, and it takes practice. And let me acknowledge and confess, even as your pastor, your pastor sometimes, to his own shame, can go hours at a time and not bring it back home. But this is the way that I think we should consider Christ in our daily business. Christ needs to be regularly on our mind. Many of you, so I'm told, when you, before you got married, you thought often of your bride-to-be, right? And you went about life, though. There were still things you had to do. But yet, as you did them, you also, your mind kept going back to the one you loved and the one you would marry. So it is with Jesus Christ, our first love. Just as the Song of Solomon brings out in its poem, we, our soul goes out to be with him. Even as we go about our daily business, so we often find our mind going back to Jesus Christ. Well, let us move on, secondly, to consider Christ as a builder, verses 2 through 4. Christ as a builder, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 3. Note it here in verse 2, the author tells us, He was faithful to him. That is, Christ was faithful to the Father who appointed him Christ, as Moses also was in all his house. Now, we're, we're together, we're considering Jesus this morning. So we consider him as an apostle and high priest. We didn't even talk much about the high priest, boys and girls, but you know a high priest is somebody who makes a sacrifice. And Jesus made a sacrifice by sacrificing himself on the cross. But he says he's a builder in it all. He was faithful to him. Jesus was faithful to the Father who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. Now, why does the author of Hebrews bring up Moses here? I think the answer is because Moses was the one to whom they wanted to go back to, remember? Moses is the one that these people were tempted to retreat back to. They were under some duress and they're thinking, you know, this Christian life is very costly. We had a lot easier life when we were following Moses. Maybe we need to go back to Moses. And so the author of Hebrews says he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house, verse 3, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Here's the point. The point is you're tempted to go back to Moses. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't you realize Moses has less glory than Christ? Now Moses is a great and the greatest of men in the Old Covenant. The most godly, the most, the Bible even says he's the most humble of men, which was written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But even Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, what? He tells the people of Israel, someday somebody greater than me is coming. 
I mean, to, to the Israelites, you have to remember, Moses, Moses was the man. He's the one that stood at the Red Sea with the staff raised and split the Red Sea that gave him the way of escape from the Egyptian army pursuing behind them. I mean, Moses was the man who went up to the mountain of God and spoke to God face to face. Moses was the one who saw the backside of God, who came down from the mountain and whose face was full of that glory, of the Shekinah glory of God radiating from his face. Moses was the one who brought the law to which the Hebrews were wanting to go back to. And the author of Hebrews is telling us here, don't you realize Moses is just a lesser servant of Christ? Christ is the builder of the home. Moses is a servant in the home. Christ is a son. I'm kind of bleeding into my third point. But the argument here is what? That Christ is far greater Moses was speaking about Jesus Christ in Deuteronomy 18.18. Moses' whole life and ministry was dedicated to pointing the people to Christ. He was not recapitulating the covenant of works at Sinai. He was preaching Christ at Sinai. He was preaching the covenant of grace. preaching the preface to the Ten Commandments that we read. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I delivered you. I saved you. Thereby, obey these commands of mine. Moses was preaching Christ. In fact, when Christ, you know, Moses had a fading glory, didn't he, boys and girls? Moses covered his face, but even the glory that he was covering was what? It was a fading glory, wasn't it? Isn't it interesting when you see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses isn't isn't covering the glory that is fading. He's, He's, if you will, suppressing the glory that is always there. He takes Peter, James, and John to the high mount, and who is there but Moses and Elijah? And Christ just kind of temporarily unveils his glory to the point that Peter doesn't know what to say. He is overwhelmed with the presentation of the glory. It's not a glory that's fading. It's a glory that's always there, that's hidden. It's a hidden glory for the time being as Jesus ministers in his humiliation. You see, Moses had a fading glory. Christ has a glory that cannot fade. It has to be concealed. Moses got to see the land of promise, but he was not allowed to enter. But it is Jesus who takes us into the holy land, who took Moses into the holy land. How is it that Moses does get to stand in the holy land one day? It's only through Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses brought the law, but the law cannot save. It is Jesus who fulfills the law and saves. Moses brought weak sacrifices of bulls and goats and calves, of blood of animals that can no way take away sin. It's Jesus' perfect sacrifice that takes away our sin. 
Moses preached Deuteronomy 18.18 that one day somebody greater than himself would come and it is Christ who comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Don't go back to Moses, the author of Hebrews is saying. Why would you go back to the weaker servant? Why would you go back to the types and the shadows when even the type and the shadow himself was saying, go to Jesus, go to Christ. He's the substance. I'm but the shadow of Christ. I'm looking ahead to Christ and I don't even fully understand to that which I'm pointing. Moses would have told you in his own day. But we see clearly in the ministry of Christ and you see, this is the problem. They're moving away from Jesus. And you move away from Jesus, you take a step away from Jesus, and you're moving yourself backwards. You're not going forwards. You're not making progress in the faith. You are regressing in the faith. And so in verse 5 and 6, we see the third point here, that we consider Christ as the Son And that the Son is greater than the servant. Jesus, the point is this, Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, notice here the credit that he gives to Moses. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. For what? A testimony of those things which were to be spoken of later. Moses, godly, faithful man in his day, But Moses' ministry was always to point to Jesus Christ in the future. He was a servant. But what? Verse 6. But we are told in verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son. It's a different type of faithfulness. Moses was the lesser servant. He He was faithful, but he was faithful as a servant. You imagine living up, living in a wealthy home that has many servants. And for a while, it may seem as though the servants are in charge. When the son is four years old, and the servant says, it's time for your bath, they're getting a bath. But don't let that fool you. That's a temporary administration that's going to give away to a greater reality. The son is still always going to be the son. And the son is the one who will reign and rule and own the house. The servant is there to minister to the son. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't. Focus on the servants. Moses is not the focus. Christ is the focus. Now, as I said, we have seen a number of ministries and parachurch ministries that I think have forgotten this. Yesterday, I got permission to use this illustration right before the service. Yesterday, Drew had us out on his boat on the lake, and we had a good time. He took us out, and we put the anchor down, and we were out in the middle of the lake, and, and we began to talk about a documentary that is available on Amazon. Um, was it Happy Shiny People? Something like that. 
Probably taken from the REM tune, is my guess. And it's about Christian ministries that have imploded by scandal. And um, it led to a conversation that we had. And I think one of the common threads in a number of these uh, implosions and scandals was they're moving away from considering Jesus. One of the parachurch ministries had various levels uh, of graduation. Uh, You began with the basic principles. And then once you finished that, then there were other courses you could take and and, and so on. And later we come to find out that the main teacher is involved in some scandal. There was another ministry that wasn't specifically mentioned But if you had to do a Venn diagram, there was a lot of overlap in these parachurch ministries here. And it, too, uh, imploded uh, many years ago. And um, there was a time in my own life in ministry I didn't know exactly what to think of of this ministry. And so I I decided to attend uh, a conference or two of theirs. I want to read you something that I wrote in my journal. I wrote this July 6, 2013, so 10 years ago to this week. I won't name the ministry, but probably a number of you can guess what it is. And I said this, and I listened to what I wrote. Having sat and listened to the presentations, I said, there are many things to admire about blank, this ministry. High view of Scripture the lordship of Christ over every area of life, an emphasis on Christian education, a desire to do everything under the Lord, a commitment to modesty and biblical roles for men and women. Now listen closely, though, to what I wrote next here. Because this this is the problem, and I think this is what the author of Hebrews is speaking to. And I said, yet for all that, the good stuff, yet I believe the movement has weakness. Two, Christology is underemphasized. The work of the gospel is not mentioned much or nearly as much as it should. Ecclesiology is too low, too low a view of the church and the biblically mandated offices of the church. And I I had other critiques, but do you notice what I mentioned there? What was lacking in the conferences that I I attended, in the messages? There was a lack of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this ministry, like some of the others, imploded in scandal. The author of Hebrews is telling us today just as he told the original audience of this letter, do not move away from your Savior. Do not move an inch away from Jesus Christ in your thinking. And if somebody comes and offers to you a better version of quote-unquote Christianity through these principles, through these teachings, through these conferences, through these lessons. 
Friends, make sure that they are preaching Christ. If they're trying to add, or even if it's a matter of emphasis, and you're not hearing the gospel much. I remember having a breakfast at this conference with somebody that I knew who was one of the speakers, and I said, there's no preaching of the gospel here. It was my critique to him. Friends, that's dangerous. And it'll eventually be found out. 